Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. You know, we're in a season of hope, and today's message really is about hope uh, and the hope of our resurrection, uh, how important that is. We see so many people in this world who have no hope. And as we celebrate the Christmas, the coming of Christ, we, we celebrate it as a remembrance. But also today, as we look at uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, the remainder of chapter 4, we're going to notice the comfort of Christ's coming, the promises that you and I have. Because let's face it, if it was just a Christmas celebration every year, you know, that, that kind of wears on you after a while, doesn't it? But the hope that we have going beyond... Christmas. Uh, there's hope beyond the grave is what today's message is really all about. Um, last week, uh, well, today we'll be in verses 13 through 18 of, of chapter 4. Last week, Paul completed his practical instruction concerning our walk. And if you think about it, as you study this message today, you'll realize, like Heidi said, it was kind of a setup for what our hope is. Because he encouraged us the last couple weeks uh, concerning our walk and our witness for Christ. And we learned that it's a balanced life of personal holiness, abstaining from sexual sin, and living in harmony with one another through what we call brotherly love, Philadelphia. And living in an orderly and honest life. So really all the facets of life, they're never going to go easy or they're not, you know, they're not always going to go great for us. But we are to strive to live an orderly and honest life. And as we learned last week, that calls for learning how to be quiet and how to mind our own business. You can see uh, from the previous message uh, in your, in your uh, Bibles. And working hard with our own hands. We talked about that. Our witness is so important with what we do and how we conduct ourselves in the public square. And Paul is calling them and us to excel more and more. He's saying, you know, you need to abound. You need to increase. You need to continue to grow. Because Christian growth means that we should not be satisfied with our present state. Not in a negative sense, but being honest and aware that, all we, that we all need to mature and we need to grow in our faith. Not, not growing weary and doing well. Another aspect of the Christian life is learning how to live sacrificially. You know, we don't necessarily like to talk about that. But we need to be reminded over and over because you and I are inherently prone to our own self-interest. And that's what this season of Christmas tends to do to us, doesn't it? You know, you have to write those Christmas cards. You have to spend extra money. You may have to work a second job to help pay for Christmas. And we know that it doesn't come natural to us. And so we need to take, you know, inventory oftentimes. Christmas time is a time to take inventory. Yes, there's a lot of struggles. There's a lot of past memories and hurts that come with Christmas for many people. But we're inherently self-centered. And how do we know that? Well, let's, let's just remember, take the picture test. If somebody has a, taken a group photo and you happen to be in it and they show it to you, who is the first person you look at? 
You guys know already. You already know. So we're inherently that way. And that's our battle, isn't it? So you and I should desire to live obedient and sacrificial lives. Why? Because of who we follow. And that's Jesus. Because he sacrificed his life for us, as we prayed this morning. He gave up his heavenly abode to bring us to God. In fact, we were on his mind before the foundation of the world. And so our call is to be imitators of that kind of love to others. And with that, from last week's message, we are now set up for what Paul is going to do now. He is going to actually change the subject almost entirely. We're going to see that he's going to give practical instruction concerning the matter of our future hope. And that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. No doubt the Thessalonians had been instructed about the return of Jesus. In fact, every chapter of this letter, at the end, it mentions the coming of our Lord Jesus in one form or fashion. Verse 110, verse 219, verse 313. And if you recall, we read in chapter 1, Paul was commending them, and he says in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we don't have a slide, but you can look at it in your, in your Bibles. It says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us, what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But pay attention to verse 10. Very important. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that's what today's message is primarily about. The fact that we will be delivered from the wrath to come. The wrath of God. It's that very subject that you, you say, well, what are we being delivered from? Well, if we, if we look at our Bibles and we study end times prophecy, we study eschatology, we believe that he is going to deliver the church from the seven-year tribulation. It's a time known as Jacob's Trouble. You see that in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And also, it's part of God's time clock, his prophetic timetable, which you can read about in Daniel 9, 24 through 29. If you really want to know what the future is going to be like and you want to see God's timetable, I would invite you to go back to the book of Daniel, open up chapter 9, and really get to know and study verses 24 through 29. If you really want to be reminded that God is truly in charge of everything from beginning to end, from before, inside and outside of eternity, you'll become an expert on that, as we all should. But you know, we're not even going to talk about the tribulation today. The topic of today's message is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. And as we will see, it was a mystery that the Lord gave to Paul to reveal. And here in the early days of his ministry, and again when he wrote to the church at Corinth, over in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul was, is, was called by God to reveal to the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I would just say, if you were to label me and how I view the end times, I would be considered a pre-tribulationist. 
I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, it's a pre-millennial view. I believe that the rapture will take place, that the church will be removed from the rapture or removed from the tribulation. And after seven years, Jesus will return with his church and his angels to set up his 1,000 year earthly kingdom. And so that's the eschatology that I have and that's what we teach in the Calvary Chapel movement. And I realize that not everybody does. But that's where we're, gonna, that's where we're coming from. If you're wondering where we're coming from, that's where we're coming from today. But keep in mind, you know, this is something uh, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be reinforced at the end of the message. Please keep in mind that Paul's primary reason for writing this letter was not to give a detailed account of the end times. His primary reason was to comfort the Thessalonians. This young church was wrestling with a question that many people continue to wrestle with this, to this day. And that is, what happens to a Christian after they die and they are laid to rest? Will they miss out on Jesus' second coming? That's, that was Paul's reason for writing this. So let's look at our verses. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Let's bow our heads for a quick prayer. Father, we thank you for the comfort that we have in reading your word, taking it to heart. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent God the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to give us an understanding that we could not have of your word. And Lord, we strive to be filled with your Holy Spirit as we study your word. And, and especially today, as I speak these words, let them come from you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us so much to be thankful for and to comfort one another with. Your word is precious. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for today's message. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So what happens to a Christian after they die and are laid to rest? Well, as I said, Paul is here to give comfort for Christ's coming. The resurrection and the return of the Lord bring hope to our grief as unbelievers, as believers. Unlike, we read, unlike unbelievers... When we go to that, you know, we grieve over our loved ones. Believe you me, we do. But the Lord has given us a hope for the future. For our loved ones that have gone to be with the Lord, we do not grieve and we do not fret as do the lost. 
And so Paul wants to comfort them. And so you and I need to know that if a believer dies, and we know that it's going to happen uh, over the course of time, it was happening at that church, and that's why they were questioning and they were wondering. You know, they, they'd sent Timothy back with some very, very serious questions. But we are, ought not grieve as those who have no hope. And so he begins, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. To be ignorant is, is uh, agonoe, or agoneo, is to not know. But really, uh, in our language, in English language, it means to be uninformed. To be uninformed about the future events. And in this case, uninformed concerning those who have fallen asleep. Or about those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep uh, refers to Christians who have died. And this is a, a metaphor that Paul is using. It's a sleep metaphor that was seen as an inoffensive way of referring to death. And we often use the expression, he or she has been laid to rest. But this refers to the body, only the body. Why? Because when a person dies, their soul is still alive. When a person dies, their soul remains alive. And there is no such thing as some would teach in soul sleep. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You will, you will experience, you and I will experience eternal consciousness even after physical death. Now, for believers, while our bodies remain asleep, we know from James, James wrote in 2.26, he said, For as the body, the body now separating, the body without the spirit is dead. And then he goes on to say, faith without works is also dead. And so believers, our soul or spirit has gone to be with the Lord. How do we know this? Several examples in the scripture. The most famous one perhaps is the thief on the cross. Luke 23, 43. Jesus looked to him. He, said, he looked at him and he said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now his body this thief's body did not ascend to, to heaven that day, but his soul went to be with Christ, to be present with the Lord. We know 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And so this is, this is Paul. He's, you could see him. Is, he's really, you know, you look at all of his teachings and you look at the scripture as a whole. And that's why it's so important for us to study the whole Bible and not just take little pieces and parts. So for believers, our bodies remain asleep, but our soul goes to be with the Lord, awaiting a resurrection. And that's part of what we're talking about today. But keep in mind, and we mentioned it this morning in prayer, for non-believers, there is that eternal consciousness, but it's an eternal consciousness of being separated from God in torment. And Pastor John mentioned it this morning. He, the Lord is really... Uh, you know, spoke to him about the seriousness of the lost and how truly lost they can be. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You, you've maybe heard it many times. Let's review it today. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 16, verses 19 through 26. Luke 16, verses 19, verses 19 through 26. He says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades. So notice the rich man, he's living in eternal consciousness. And Jesus himself, this is not a parable. This is a, Jesus speaks of this as something that's real. And so he is being in torments in Hades. And this man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. In verse 24, it says, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So yes, there is an eternal consciousness, whether you're saved or you're not. Now the reason why Paul, the apostle, here he was being Paul the pastor, why he did not want them to be ignorant, is when he said, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. That rich man now had no hope in eternity. Having no hope of salvation. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, he said, The pagan world in Paul's day had no hope of life after death. A typical inscription on a grave demonstrates this fact. I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. While some of the philosophers, such as Socrates, sought to prove happiness after death, the pagan world had no word of assurance. But keep in mind, folks, that Christian hope is not based on wishful thinking. This isn't some little fairy tale. This is real. It is based on a confident expectation that God will fulfill all the things that he's promised. If we believe in the gospel, we have the promise of resurrection glory with Jesus. Look at verse 14 in our passage. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now that word if, uh, is not, it does not indicate a maybe or perchance, but it is a point of fact. Some modern translations say, since we believe, or simply, we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, apothnesco, this physical death and resurrection, the key to our salvation. Romans 10.9 says this, and this, look, if you don't know Jesus, and you hear this message today, if you're in this room today, and you don't know Jesus Listen to these words right here. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This comfort brings us uh, the fact that, you know, it needs to be highlighted. And that's what Paul is doing. The comfort that this brings. It just needs to be highlighted a little bit for us as believers. Paul refers to the Christian's death as having fallen asleep. 
But here, he just stated that Jesus died using a different word. Jesus died. Why didn't he refer to Jesus' death in the same way that he refers to a Christian's death? And the answer is because of Jesus' death and resurrection that you and I don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. Do you look forward to dying? Do you look forward to the physical pain that it could be? No. But you do not have to fear the end result. But it gets better. He says to the Thessalonians, he says to us, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Or so also, as one translation says. God will bring with him. To bring is to lead with oneself. To attach oneself as an attendant. And then he says he's going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who have died. Notice, he cannot bring us with him unless he has brought them up earlier. Unless he has also returned and came for them. Unless they are already with him, you and I cannot return with him. Now why did Paul again have to explain these matters? We knew, we know that they expected the Lord's return. But because they loved one another so much and that they were worried and grieving that those who had died among them would somehow miss out. That's why Paul wrote the letter. Again, a reminder for us. This is a pastoral letter. And as I mentioned, Paul's main purpose here is to comfort these new and very faithful Christians. Remember, they've only been a church for a couple of months. And they are very strong in the Lord in so many ways. And so he didn't get to stay with them long enough to teach them. But you know, he taught them quite a bit, didn't he? I was listening to uh, J. Vernon McGee preaching on this passage. And uh, he brought up an interesting point. How is it that Paul went into the deep things of eternal life and you know, the, the, the meat of the word in such a short period of time with these young Christians? And J. Vernon McGee, if you're familiar with him, he was a pastor for, you know, 50 some odd years and he grew up in a denomination. And he was told as a young pastor that Christians, especially new believers, newly saved Christians, don't need to hear too much of this deep stuff right away. You know, we need to hold off on them. And I agree when he said, that's a bunch of nonsense. You look at this young church of the Thessalonians, he taught them all of those doctrines, but he hadn't spent enough time with them. And so here he is writing to them, and he will write another letter because they don't quite get it. Actually, they're still confused. But he loves them so much, and he wants them to be informed. And he wants them to be confident of several facts. What are those facts? Well, first of all, as we've been saying, first of all, if you're taking notes, the physical death of a believer is temporary. The physical death of a believer is temporary. Your body, my body, will be supernaturally undone at Jesus' return. Philippians 3.21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able. Now Jesus, but according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Someone has mentioned that uh, Jesus, being the author of all life and creation, 
He knows our DNA sequence. You know, everybody has a, a DNA sequence. Everybody's got a slightly different DNA. You've got a slightly different build physically. Well, the author of that is Jesus Christ himself, the creator of all things. And so the question sometimes comes up, well, how, how is the Lord going to be able to resurrect, you know, uh, uh, just the dust of a decomposed body or perhaps somebody was cremated or whatever it was. Remember, he has the information. And uh, this guy pointed out that uh, Jurassic Park, you know, that's how they were able to create those crazy uh, dinosaurs. Because they had the DNA sequence, not because they had actual matter. Because we're made from dust. But if you combine dust with a DNA sequence and you're the creator of the universe, it should be no problem whatsoever for Jesus Christ to resurrect our bodies. Let's remember that. And maybe thank the guy that wrote Jurassic Park. I don't know. <clears throat> so physical death of the believer is temporary. And while our soul is absent from the body, it is very much alive and present with the Lord. Very much so. I like what Swindoll says. He says that that's the promise of life that Christ, even after death, because his death has paid for the sin that separated us from God. You know, that's amazing as well, because he had to do that as well. He's not only the creator of all things, but he had to pay the price on our behalf. And he said, but while we're present with Christ, our bodies will lie silent, sleeping in their graves. That physical part of us, part of God's original good creation, will be miraculously raised and transformed so Christ's death and resurrection provides the payment and the power for our complete salvation, soul and body, spiritual and physical. And you know what, folks? That is hope beyond the grave. So take that with you when you go Christmas shopping. Verses 15 through 18, we're going to see the return, the resurrection, and the rapture. The return the resurrection, and the rapture. This is a guarantee of our eternal fellowship with one another and Christ. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Okay, Paul is not making this up on the fly. You know, he's not like, hmm, I'm not going to answer this question. He received the word of the Lord from Jesus himself, just as he received how to do the Lord's uh, communion and many things. You know, Paul spent many times with the Lord. He, he even went up to the third heaven. You can read about that in Corinthians. So Paul heard from God directly. And he says, by the word of the Lord. So the authority for Paul's words that he is speaking come from the Lord. And we should not make fun of them. We should not despise them. New Living Translation says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. In fact, Paul and Silas were considered to be prophets in their day. You can read about that in Acts 13.1. There were many of several prophets. But again, Paul wants to comfort them with the assurance that the Lord's return and the promise of resurrection are based on God's promises, not man's speculation. And so he begins to provide us with some very crucial details. He says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Notice he says we, like it's present tense. It's like it's, it's you know, that 2,000 years ago when he's writing this letter, we and uh, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Paul and the Thessalonians and, and myself and many of you believe in what's called the imminent return of Christ. The imminent return. No other prophetic box needs to be checked off before Jesus can come back at any moment. At any moment. 
The other systems that teach, and I'm not going to go far into this, but just note, the other systems that see things differently when it comes to the end times do not believe in eminency. They don't have a belief in that. But we do. We believe that Jesus could come back in any moment. Does that mean that we don't take uh, the, the criticism that those of us who hold this position is that you don't care about the world? You just, you know, uh, Kirk Cameron said, you know, you're just eating your, uh, your uh, Chick-fil-A and waiting for the rapture to happen. You know, you Christians don't do anything. You're not active in any way in society. And that's not how we're to be. We're to be ready. And Paul's been saying, look, you need to live a life of purity, holiness. You need to love one another. You need to tell others about Jesus. You need to live a quiet life. You need to witness. And so you see he's setting them up for this truth. So Jesus himself taught his disciples to watch for his return. He said, you also, speaking to his disciples, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. The command to be ready implies eminence. And throughout the New Testament, the church is told to be ready. Philippians 3.20, Titus 2.13, next chapter of Thessalonians. And so one writer says it this way, if the disciples and the early church were to expect the coming of the Lord at any time, how much more should we be waiting in keen expectation? Oh Lord, we want to be ready for you. We will know by, he says, and then he goes on, he says, we, are, we who are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord, so it's eminent, it can happen any time, we will by no means precede those who are asleep. So he finally gets to answering their question, saying, we, those of us who are alive, will by no means precede those of us who have gone to be, to lie asleep in the grave, and their souls have gone to be with the Lord. He's dealing directly with the question, and so their question is, is, what about the believers that we've just been burying? You know, there's lots of persecution. There's a lot of things that are happening. We don't know the details. Will they miss out on Jesus' return? And the answer is 100% no. No. We who are alive and remain will not jump. You and I, if, if the rapture happens during our lifetime, we don't get to jump at the head of the line. The dead in Christ will rise first. He says, now he gives us the details of the Lord's guarantee of our eternal and glorious reunion and fellowship. This is the, now some finer details. In verse 16, he says, first we see the return of the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. And it's going to be accompanied by three unique sounds. Before we talk about those, remember, he is now, all of those souls that have gone to be with the Lord, he has them with him now. He is bringing them back. And he's, he's, there are going to be three unique sounds. First of all, it's going to be with a shout, a kalusma, a command, a summons. You know, Jesus, he, he shouted just like he shouted outside of Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus, come out! With exclamation point. John 5, 28 and 29, he said, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice 
and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So you see, everyone will have eternal consciousness and unbelievers will also be raised, but they will be raised to be await the great white throne judgment. He says, I come with a shout. He will come with a shout. He will come with the voice of an archangel. This is a, a, a sound of uttered words. Now we know from Jude and Daniel and Revelation, there's only one archangel named in the Bible, and that's Michael. But if you read Daniel 10, 13, you could just make note of that. The prophet mentions that there are more than one archangels. And so a shout a voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. We've been going through the book of Numbers, that, that salpix, God's trumpet. The Jewish people were familiar with trumpets because trumpets were used to declare war and to announce special times and seasons and to gather people for a journey. And you can see that in Numbers 10. In the Roman Empire, trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a great person. And when God gave the law to Israel, the event was preceded by a trumpet blast in Exodus 19. Now this is hardly, in my opinion, a secret rapture, which is some of the negative, as some critics would declare. You know, for those who are alive during this time, it may well be us, we're not date setters, we're not date setters. Those who are alive at the moment will either be on their way up into the clouds or they'll be looking at one another saying, did you hear that? How many times have you done that? Well, we live near Harvey Point, I know. <laughs> now you're used to it. People that visit here are like, did you hear that? You're like, Harvey Point. What's that? Can't tell you because we don't know either. <laughs> Not allowed to fly over it. And if you did know, you couldn't say anything about it, could you? In any way. But notice the resurrection of the dead in Christ. There's an order to it. He says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Remember those ones who are asleep in the grave? The ones whose DNA signal or signature Jesus knows every little bit. He knows the hairs on our head, every single one of them. He knows how we were built because he built us. And they will rise first. So Paul is now assuring the Thessalonians that their dead brothers and sisters in Christ will not miss on this glorious event. And in verse 17, he goes, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive. This is where we get that controversial word that shall be caught up. Now we're going to study a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Latin along with our English, okay? It's not going to be a hard test. You guys already know this. The word caught up in English is, is harpazo in Greek. That means to snatch or to catch away. So where do we get the word rapture then? Well, in the early church, there was a man uh, who the Catholic Church refers to as Saint Jerome. And St. Jerome created, he basically penned most of the, what, we, what the Catholics still use to the, today. It was one of the earliest Bibles written in what language? Latin. It was written in Latin. 
A lot of people spoke Latin back then. And so the Greek word harpazo was translated into Latin by Jerome using the word, the Latin word, and I'll mess this up, you, you Latin students. Rapturo. Where are they at? I know there's a few here. Smile. <laughs> she doesn't like study. Never mind. Uh, anyway, rapturo. And this is where we get the word rapture. So for those who want to get into this silly little argument and say, rapture's not in the Bible. No, it's not. So you can use the Greek instead. Harpazo. I speak English. I'll say caught up. We get into these things, right? Let's not deny that there's a discussion goes on all the time. The doctrine of the rapture was not clearly taught anyway in the Old Testament, which is why later in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul calls it a mystery now revealed. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 53. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. How do you think you're going to be in God's presence? How do you think you're going to be outside the atmosphere perhaps? How do you think you're going to be in heaven if your body is not changed? I mean, just looking at it from a practical standpoint. And so we'll be raised. To catch up, catch away speedily, there was, a, there was a Greek scholar, his name was Kenneth Wiest, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, he goes into this, he goes quite into detail about it. You could probably find his writings online, I'm sure. But to catch away speedily. Remember when Philip was caught up in Acts 8.39 after he led the Ethiopian to Christ. Well, when the Lord returns in the air, we who are alive will be caught away quickly in the twinkling of an eye. And so some could say, well, it's going to be so fast, nobody will be able to say, did you hear that? Perhaps. I mean, we can get in all kinds of conjecture and speculation. But this means for you and I, once again, we should live each moment in the expectation of the Lord's return. You're not going to have time to figure it out. Oh Lord, can I give my life to you now? No. I mean, you're going to have to go through the tribulation if that happens while you're alive. Okay. Another word for to snatch away, harpazo, rapturo, is to seize by force. So you're not going to be able to pull away. You're not going to be able to resist it. Another word for that is to claim one for oneself. He's coming to claim his bride. We are the bride of Christ. And if you look at the, we don't have time to go into it today, but if you look at the, the whole pattern of the Jewish wedding, it is a beautiful picture of how the Lord comes for his church. When you look at that pattern in the Jewish wedding. And the bride in that Jewish wedding ceremony has no idea when the bridegroom is coming. She just waits. Another word for that is to move to a new place. Paul used the word to describe his visit to heaven. Remember, he went to the third heaven. Jesus Christ has gone, and this is real important for us, Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a home for us, John 14, 1 and 6. We'll read that in a little bit here. Another final 
description is to be rescued from danger. You know, you look through this, the pattern of the Bible. God has patterns. When, when uh, he destroyed the earth with a flood, he rescued the only faithful man in his family, Noah. The reunion with the saints now, as we come together, we, come, we start to wrap this up. The reunion with the saints is going to be glorious and everlasting. He says we'll be raised together with them. Now, in the order is complete. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we will rise together with them in the clouds. It's been said that death is a great separator, but Jesus Christ is the great reconciler. He brings things together. Now think about our experiences. We get together on a very regular basis. I mean, here we are. Another Sunday, another Christmas season, another year older. Some, some people had a birthday. But think about it. And we still, by the grace of God, and through the love of God, we, we could see, be seen shaking hands, giving hugs, you know, fist bumps, high fives. And this, this, this happens despite all of our baggage, right? All the issues we're dealing with. Because we know, by faith, that the Lord is present within us and among us. And so we have a little reunion every Sunday when we come to church. But this reunion, wow. <laughs> I mean, come on. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. When we see the word meet, it's a glorious meeting. The word meet means to, it's a friendly encounter with an important dignitary. And so, as we said earlier, in order to do this, we need glorified heavenly bodies. Because John, uh, he wrote that we will someday share in his glory. Now, we don't share in God's glory here on earth. We don't take God's glory for the work that he does, ever. But when we are with him and present with him, he now will share his glory with us. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Amen. Amen. And so he, 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 he comes to the end. He gives them this hope, his realization. You know, he wants us. The Lord wants us to have a realization of our eternal hope. He says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's an everlasting meeting. It's not going to wait till next Sunday or when I get off vacation. John 14, 3. Jesus' promise. This is Jesus' promise to you and I. 14, John 14, verses 1 and 3. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, because in my Father's house there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to receive the dead in Christ and those who are alive at that time, where he is, in the air. At the rapture. <coughs> a little sobering thought though. Our meeting with the Lord will also be a time of reckoning. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. This Greek word bima, translated judgment seat, refers to the place in the old times where Olympic judges would be awarded crowns 
to the winners. And at that point, our works as Christians will be judged and rewards will be given. Judge whether we receive a reward or not, or how many we receive. But always remember that the judgment seat of Christ must not be confused with the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20, if you're taking notes. The judgment seat of Christ is for only for believers. The white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ happens immediately after the rapture. The white throne judgment ha happens after the thousand year millennial reign. Judgment seat of Christ determines our rewards for service. The white throne judgment determines the amount of judgment that a sinner receives. Paul concludes in verse 18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The reason for biblical eschatology is not to debate over timing. You, we have, they're fun conversations, believe me. I know many of you that have studied eschatology much more than I have. And they can be some very fun, enlightening, very interesting. If you ever want to listen to somebody who, who can really get into details, uh, Dr. Chuck Missler, his, uh, his teachings are online. He's written several books. Dr. Thomas Ice, people like that. But they're not there for us to argue about. And that's unfortunately what's happened in our world today. He says, therefore, comfort one another. In light of this remarkable mystery that's been revealed, comfort, that word parakaleo, it means to encourage and strengthen by consolation. And he says, do it with these words. In other words, the words that he said earlier in verse 15 that he received from the Lord, he said, now comfort one another with these words. In the next chapter, we'll start to see where Paul related the same doctrine of the return of Christ to the unsaved. So that's next week if, you're, if you care to uh, uh, follow along with us. But the question really is now for many of us as we begin to end, and I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. The question for all of us, since we have made, a, I think, a very good case through God's word that Christ could return at any time. The question is, is, are you ready to meet the Lord? Since he's coming, are you ready? And one mark of a true Christian has been described as somebody who's eagerly looking for the coming of Jesus. And so as we grow in the Lord, we not only look for his appearing, but we also love his appearing. And that's a big difference, isn't it? You can bring the lights down if you like, Eric. I've often said, you know, before I come to the Lord, and this is again, it's sort of my personal testimony, but I always felt that if I really sought after God or entered in a place that I considered to be a, quote, holy place like a church, that he would strike me down because I'd sinned so greatly and grievously throughout my young life at the time. But as we grow in the Lord, the question is, is not only as you look for His appearing, but do you love to think about it? And some of you go, I haven't lived my life yet. I'm, I want to raise my family. I want to build my house. I want to raise my kids. I want to see my kids get married. 
And those are good things. But while you're doing that, you need to be assured that you're ready. You're ready because his time could come at any time. And this is not meant to be a hammer with which to hit you with. Another thing we get accused of. We are just seeking to be comfort. But we still have to ask the question, are you ready for Jesus' return? Robert Murray McShane was a godly Presbyterian preacher. And he used to ask people, do you think Jesus Christ will return today? And most of them would reply, no, not today. And then McShane would say, then my friend, you had better be ready, for he is coming at such an hour as you think not. Death is a fact of life. The only way that you and I can escape death is to be alive when the Lord Jesus returns. Death is not an accident, it is an appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And so if you should die today, where would your soul go? One writer made a note of a, uh, an, a, he calls it a quaint inscription of a gravestone in an old British cemetery not far from Windsor Castle. And it read this, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And he goes on to say that I heard about a visitor who read that epitaph and added these lines, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> we Christians have a wonderful assurance and hope. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promised return. And so I hope that today you have drawn comfort from this message. If you're a Christian, you, you have claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you're not, I pray that you would examine your heart before God. And that you would seek to know him by simply asking him to come into your life. And I'm not, I'm not going to read the sinner's prayer today. But if you're curious about eternal life. Please come see me today. I'd love to give you a Bible. I'd love to pray with you. Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's word and we ask, Lord, that you simply go before us. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, warm our hearts with your truth. We thank you for your message, Lord. We thank you for the comfort that it brings, knowing that there is hope beyond the grave. And as we continue on through this season of joy, this Christmas season that can be very difficult, may we always keep in mind that you're coming for us, that you will receive your bride, and one day we will present, be present with you forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.